I hope many of you were able to be here last week. What a special treat to have uh, John Newfelt with us. Wasn't that wonderful? Um, it's also exciting. Next week, we get to have uh, Rick Reed, who was the pastor at the Met in Ottawa for a long time and now is the president of Heritage Seminary. And uh, I was told about Rick that he's the prince of preachers in Canada. So last week, we had, I was told, the best preacher in Canada. And next week, we have the prince of preachers in Canada. And then there's me. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm secure, though. It's all right. Uh, don't cry a tear for me. I can make it. It's good to be uh, with you, though, in God's Word today. We're doing something special today. Um, instead of continuing or finishing out our series in Matthew, which we'll be doing in a few weeks, um, every year about this time, we just take one week to think about biblical leadership because it's, it's this time of year that we ask all of our members to prayerfully look to the scriptures and make some decisions as to who they're going to commend to the elders for the positions of elder and deacon within our church, which is something we take real seriously. And so, uh, we have now, this will be the third year that we've stopped this time of year, just to do one sermon on that, which is what I'll be doing today. Uh, the sermon, as you can see, is from Acts 20, verses 24 to 32, which if you're using this uh, Black Pew Bible, you can find on page 929. I would encourage you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul has gathered the uh, elders from the town of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, because he's saying his final farewell to them. He's anticipating prison after this. And so he has some final words to them. And this is a section of his words to them. Again, Acts twenty twenty four to 32. He said, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we look to you today. As we do every week when we gather together gathered around your word because we know it's, it's the bread of life. It's our spiritual milk. 
We don't need to hear from me. We and I all together, we need to hear from you. So we ask that you would speak clearly to us by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. The more you grasp something's value, the greater you care for it. Let me show you what I mean. When my mother was a preteen, she had an impressive penny collection. There's no way to know for sure, but today it would likely be worth over $1,000. Of course, like I said, we'll never know for sure. Because when she was at the house with her teenage siblings, they decided to order pizza. And when the pizza man came, her teenage siblings realized they had no money. And since it was just a hobby for her, she'd never looked up prices or anything like that. And it was pizza. She went and got all of her pennies, assembled them together, and contributed the few bucks that she was able to buy the pizza. She didn't know the real value of the coins that she had. Because, of course, if she'd known the value of those coins, and especially if she had known how, value they'd be, how valuable they'd be 50 years later, she wouldn't have used them to buy a pizza. The more you grasp something's value, the greater you care for it. And that's the premise behind Paul's comments that we read today. Right? He's speaking to that church in Ephesus, and there we see it right in verse 28. Right? He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Listen, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Grasp its value, he says. It costs God's own blood, which Jesus shed. And when you grasp that, you will show it greater care. You can kind of feel, if you, if you just put yourself in a situation, you can kind of feel Paul's heart, heartbeat, what he's passionate about. He's just saying, if I can just get this group to understand how precious the church is, Obtained by Jesus' own blood. The rest would take care of itself. They would show its proper care. And how true it is today, right? I fear too many of us treat church like a plaything. We don't realize how valuable it is, so we don't give it its proper care. We fail to grasp its value. So we treat it like a small business for the visionary entrepreneur to experiment with, tinkering in his own brilliance just to find the right growth formula, right? Or maybe we fail to grasp its value, so we treat it like a country club. It's the job of the long-standing members to preserve its rich history and vaunted traditions. Have you ever heard the word 
ecclesiology. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Ecclesiology refers to how we think about and live out church. And our ecclesiology today in the West is alarmingly weak. And I believe that our ecclesiology is so weak because we fail to grasp that the church was purchased at the highest cost ever paid for anything. So you think about questions like, how do we set up our church government governance? Who leads the church and how are they supposed to lead? How should we structure ourselves as a church? Now, if the church is just our plaything, if we value it lightly, how we answer those questions doesn't matter that much. Just think for a little bit, come up with a brilliant idea and run with it. But if we realize that the church was bought at the price of God's own blood, then we dare not trifle with these things without first thinking long and hard about how God would want us to care for this church. Think about it. Just just imagine that you're the curator at a small local art museum. And the Louvre is traveling through. And they're carrying a, a a portion of their collection with them, including for this special U.S. tour. Look at me. North American tour, sorry. You guys are so gracious with me. I appreciate it. Their special North American tour, they're bringing Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. And for whatever reason, they ask, well, it's moving through this area for your museum to house this piece of art. You don't think, hmm, I've got some really creative ideas for lighting and humidity that I want to try out on this. See how it'll, that's not how you think. And you get these special instructions given about how to care for it. You don't think, well, that's not the way we've done it. I'm going to do it the way we've always done it. No. You understand how valuable this is. And so you're looking diligently for the guidelines. I want to do it exactly as the Louvre wants me to do it. You would pay careful heed to every instruction given because you grasped the value of what you had. So today, we're giving a sermon on biblical leadership for the third time in three years. Ho-hum, right? But at issue, listen to me, at issue isn't really how we think about biblical leadership. I don't think. The real issue in our hearts is that we fail to grasp how significant the church is. And so I want to just pause for a little bit and think together about the value of the church of God as taught us in the Bible. And in order to do that, we actually have to understand the big plan about what God's doing in this world. So, remember back in Genesis, God creates the entire world, and it's this 
beautiful, lush garden. The people who live in it enjoy harmony with one another and with God and with all created things, including the animals. Everything is working in perfect sync with one another. It is a paradise. But then, something terrible happens. Man decides to reject God's rule over him and instead rule himself. God has given him one rule, a tree of, of, whom, of which is fruit you ought not eat, a tree from which he can't eat the fruit of, something like that. Somebody can get that sentence right for me later. But he's, to take, he's not to take this fruit and eat it. That's God's rule over him. But he says, no, For various reasons, I think that fruit is good for me to eat, and so I reject God's rule, and I embrace my own self-rule, and he takes of the fruit, and he eats. And immediately after that, all chaos breaks loose. All of a sudden, there's bickering and fighting between created things. There's, There's distance between God and man. There's So much hatred soon after that a brother kills his brother. Not too long after that, you learn of the first rape. It is a horrible situation. Disease and sickness and death sets in. Hate, discord, disease, war, murder, deception, jealousy. The list could go on. All the brokenness. All the brokenness that you and I experience today in our world is a byproduct of man's rebellion against God's rule. But God wasn't caught off guard by man's rebellion. He actually had a plan, the Bible tells us, all along to establish an even better kingdom than the one at the beginning. An eternal good kingdom that would have no end. And that kingdom wouldn't just be made up of the people that he'd created. It would be made up of the people he'd rescued and redeemed from the mess they'd made of their own lives. That's what the Bible tells us. And the Bible says one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to bring in this kingdom. And he'll establish this kingdom that's marked by justice and goodness and joy and love. It tells us there'll be no more tears, no more sickness or disease, no more death. You got it? Your your creaking bones won't creak. Your recurring nightmares won't recur. Your past won't haunt you. And that kingdom, the Bible says, will be open to anyone who has acknowledged the failure of their own self-rule and embraced Jesus' rule as king. So that's, that's where we live right now. Between the paradise in Genesis... And the greater paradise in Revelation. We live amidst the brokenness and fallenness of this world. 
And those of us who've repented of our own self-rule, that means we've turned our back on our own self-rule, and we've embraced Jesus' rule, are formed into little communities, the Bible teaches, and instructs us to do. Little communities of Christians that are called churches. Well, how ridiculous it is then when we form these little churches to say, and we're going to govern them with our own self-rule. It doesn't make any sense. No, no, we should be looking to God to rule his church, right? God has designed these little churches as signposts to a fallen world pointing forward to the goodness and wholeness of the world to come. We're little, uh, little signs that everyone can see that says, this world isn't what it's all about. Something far better is coming. The church is a harbinger of that coming eternal and good kingdom. That's what the church is. That's all. Do you think it's important? Do you think it's valuable? It's interesting how God in the scriptures refers to the church. It says in Ephesians and in Revelation that it's the bride of Christ. First Timothy calls it a pillar and buttress of truth. First Corinthians calls it the body of Christ. It's a foretaste of the eternal perfect kingdom and it's dearly loved. By God. And in order to be all that, it comes at the highest cost possible. Remember, our verse in Acts 20 says, which he obtained with his own blood. God doesn't have blood. That means... In order for him to obtain it with his own blood, he has to become a human being. Now, that'd be a little bit like you becoming a maggot to redeem maggots. I mean, that's the gap's probably not as big between me and a magnet as there is between me and God. But he didn't just become a man. He went to the lowest spot in humanity. He suffered abuse, mockery, abandonment, and torture that only the worst of criminals in that era would have experienced. You know, at one point, Steve Jobs was told by the company he founded that he was a part of the problem. See you later. Jesus Christ was told by the people he created that he was part of the problem. See you later. But Jesus endured it all because he had to in order to take the ultimate step, which was to die in our stead. You see, 
he had to reach a point where he could take on all of the brokenness, all of the sin of humanity upon himself. The rebellion, the the self-rule, the rebellion had to be stomped out. It had to be dealt with. Wrath had to be poured out upon this. And so what God does is through his son, he goes and he absorbs the pouring out of wrath, the stomping out the rebellion that rightfully should go to us. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He takes the consequence of our own self-rule and what it deserves with God, and he bears it upon his own self. In a moment on the cross, he was forsaken by his Father for us. This is what he was willing to do to rescue a people who would be a people for his own self in that eternally good kingdom. These people who now make up the church... He chose to be crushed and punished so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be part of his kingdom. Hallelujah, we sang. What a savior. That's what God had to do in order to redeem us. And it's what he had to do in order to establish his church, his people. And that is how valuable the church is. Do we get it? It's probably not something that's a yes or no question, right? Something that must grow in our own hearts. But it's why you'll hear me say, in a somewhat intentionally provocative way, that at Maple Avenue, we believe in a top-down leadership style. You know, you get asked, you're interviewing the church, congregation asks you questions, more of a bottom-up, grassroots, or top-down. Never say top-down. That's not what people want to hear. But we believe in a top-down style of leadership. But this is the important part. I'm not the head of the church. Christ is. The elders are not the head of the church. Christ is. The largest donor here, and I don't know who you are, is not the head of the church. Christ is. The longest standing member, and I do know who you are, is not the head of this church. Christ is. There's about four of you who think you are, just so you know. (laughs) We believe that Christ rules his church. Once we grasp how valuable this church is to Jesus... And we say, you are the head. We look to you. And here's the thing. He rules his church through his word. God has spoken in the scriptures. And so if we want Christ to be able to rule, it's not just me and kind of, I've got this feeling that God wants us to do this. No, we have something we can all look to and say, he's spoken. And so we know then how he's to rule his church. So this is the key phrase, right, in terms of you think about biblical leadership. Christ rules Maple Avenue Baptist Church. Christ rules this church, and he does so through his word. So I just want to take a few minutes now to run quickly through some of the basic teachings of Scripture on how the church is to run. I'm going to go through three different components, the congregation, the elder, and the deacon. First, the congregation. We we know from the Scriptures that God holds the whole membership responsible for what happens within the church. So, for example, when the Corinthian church goes off the rails, 
He doesn't just write the elders and say, you've tolerated this kind of bad thing. What's wrong with you? Get them in order. He writes the whole church and takes them to task for tolerating what's going on there. And most of our New Testament is letters written to whole churches addressing issues that either they're tempted to face or might, might be facing or that they're already facing. See, he holds the whole membership responsible. So all of us answer to Christ for what goes on in our church. We have the annual general meeting. We have church business meetings. Who wants to go to that? Except for people like me who have a weird obsession with parliamentary procedure. But if you think about it a little bit differently, that is, think about it biblically. God has entrusted the membership of this church with setting a course and direction for our church. And he will hold us accountable for what happens here. And so all of us need to take that responsibility seriously. That's why we're a congregational church. That's why our church is involved, our membership is involved in major decisions here. So that's a congregation. The second thing, as it relates to the scriptures, is the office of elder or overseer. Now these are either overlapping roles or identical roles in the scripture. We treat them here as identical roles. And... There's a lot of scripture passages that relate to elders or overseers. So we have Acts 20 here. We have 1 Peter 5. We have uh, their qualifications are given in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. There's several other passages that speak to their role. But their qualifications are listed. The qualifications for this office are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. Now, for all who are members, we've included in your mail slot a, uh, uh, we look at each one of those qualifications, just kind of, we've done some study on that, and we've kind of spelled out a little bit what that qualification looks like. So I'm not going to go through all that today. You can do that on your own, and we encourage you, almost <laughs> plead with you to do that. But I will say this, as you go through the list, what's remarkable about that list is how unremarkable it is. You're looking at most of the stuff, and you're like, that's things that every Christian should be doing. So it says stuff like, uh, not quarrelsome. It's not like he's saying, okay, most Christians can be quarrelsome, but just not the elders. Not addicted to much wine. Yeah, we've got a church full of people addicted to wine, but a couple of people aren't, so let's make them elders. No, that's not the idea. Not a lover of money. You know, these are things that all of us should be, that God calls all of us to be, except for one notable exception. In 1 Timothy 3, it says he needs to be apt to teach. In Titus 1, it says he needs to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. So in addition to being a man who's actually bearing the fruit of the Spirit, living out his faith, a godly man, an elder needs to have a certain ability to understand the Bible, to think from biblical principle. And to be able to explain that in a coherent way to others. Now that actually makes entire sense. If these are the people who are overseeing our church, who are leading our church, that our congregation has put over us to lead us, but really we want Christ leading our church through the word, well, who do you want in that elder role? You want somebody who can understand what Jesus is saying and think clearly about that. And said, of course, accordingly. Did you notice as I was reading in Acts 20 that the real risk he's worried about 
He's not saying, hey, I'm worried that after my departure, your baptism numbers are going to decline. I'm worried that you'll, um, you know, build your building with the wrong square footage. He says, I'm worried or I know that there's going to be little twistings of doctrine. Subtle corruptions creeping in. Even amongst yourselves, some of this will start to happen. That you'll start to teach things contrary to what God has said. And that's his great concern. So why do we need elders who meet this qualification of apt to teach or able to give instruction and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it? It's because we need to hold unswervingly to what Christ has said and let Christ govern his church so that sound doctrine, right thinking about God and ourselves and what our task is, rules us. So, we need to, as a church, be looking for people whose lives are characterized by those qualifications of elder and people who you say, I trust them when they handle God's word that they are doing a good job of it. They're holding to what God thinks, not what they think, and they can think clearly from biblical principle and relate that to all sorts of things we have to face. Now, as we've examined the scripture, so that, that's kind of what we're doing in selecting men. That's what, as you take time to pray through the list of men in our church who are members and are saying, who of these men should I commend for the office of elder? That's what you want to be pouring over, those qualifications and be thinking about those things. But what, what is their role? What is the role of an elder? What are they supposed to do? As we went through those different passages that I taught, and just for the interest of time, I'm going to kind of condense it to... There's two, two tasks that we say an elder is to be doing in our church. Teaching and shepherding. Now, that word shepherding, by the way, is also in Latin the word pastoring. That's where we get our term pastor. So in our doctrinal statement, we actually say we have two offices, pastor and deacon. Pastor is just kind of the part of what that elder does. So elder overseer is the office. But sometimes we call them pastors. In our church, both pastors and lay elders are together elders. We'll get to that later. Sorry, teaching, shepherding. What do we mean by those things? By teach, we mean an elder gives theological and philosophical direction to the church in ways that mirror God's word. An elder is to give theological and philosophical direction to the church in ways that mirror God's word. That's teach. The other one is shepherd. And by that we mean an elder prays and cares for each individual in the church family in a way that's driven by God's word. You got that? An elder prays for and cares for each individual in the church family in a way that's driven by God's word. Not perfect way of saying it, but you could say we're kind of picking the dads for our family in that shepherding sense who's going to take care of us and look out for us so that's elders what about deacons the other office that the bible describes is deacons it's qualification the the qualifications for deacons first timothy three the establishment of the first deacons is in acts chapter six a deacon in those days 
among other things, was the name of a household servant who kept the household running. And that seems to be the function that they had in the early church. You see that as they're uh, first set apart in Acts chapter 6. So a deacon's job is to come alongside the elders with the goal of taking off their plates as much as possible that isn't specific to the role of eldering. So an elder needs to be able to focus his attention on teaching and shepherding. There's all sorts of other things that have to happen in order for a church family, especially of our size, to function. And so we need deacons to come alongside and say, I'm going to help you. I'm going to take stuff off your plates so that you can really focus on teaching and shepherding, praying for our church, thinking about where we should be going theologically, philosophically as a church. I'm going to take everything I can off your plate to, to help you in that. So that is the role of a deacon. Those deacon qualifications that are given in 1 Timothy 3, a lot of them are the same ones that are there for elders. And again, those things are spelled out in, our, uh, in the, the packet you have that we distributed in your mail slots. Um, so we're, we're looking for people who embody a certain set of qualifications. And they're really character qualifications. Are they trustworthy, godly people? So in our church, um, we're asking for you to um, bring commendations for, for deacon as well. And in those commendations for deacon, we are trying to serve two, fill two specific deacon roles. Um, we are without, uh, we are not without, we have an interim deacon of worship, which is Rob Nevin, that the elders appointed, but now we get to actually do it officially. Um, so we're looking for nominations for that or commendations for that. And then the other one is deacon of administration. Dennis Bodkin's three years there. His term is finished. He is eligible for a second three-year term, but his first three-year term is finished. So those specific roles. But I'm saying that because I don't want you to think, who would be good at administration? I will put that person's name down. Who's a great musician? I will put that person's down. What we should all be doing is looking to the scriptures and looking at those qualifications and praying through those qualifications and saying, who are the men and women in our church who embody those qualifications? And let's put those names down. And if we think one of them would be particularly good with music or with administration, we can put those a little note in our commendations. That's helpful to us as elders as we call through those things. But it may be that halfway through the year, we feel like, you know what, we need a, a new deacon position in this or uh, another position comes open. We want to be able to go back to that list and say, here are the people who our church senses are the people who best embody these things. So don't get locked on just those two positions. Does that make sense? A deacon then handles the administrative load of the household so that the elders can focus on teaching and shepherding. So those are the basic principles that the Bible teaches regarding the governance and leadership of the church. And I want to uh, take a minute, just kind of briefly explain how we flesh that out in our context. I know I've started to do that already, but I have this really nifty PowerPoint presentation that Josh Brake put together for us, and I'm excited about it to show you. I think you've seen it. Some of you have been around here for a few years have seen it before. But there you have, this is the, this is the structure of our church. This is how we're set up. Christ is the head of Maple Avenue Baptist Church. And he rules over his congregation through his word. If Josh was really doing a good job, he would have put a Bible there so that he could rule through the Bible. <laughs> Just kidding, Josh. I didn't ask you to do that. But that's really, that's really the basic... Oh, 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 you're getting ahead of me. Sorry. Yeah. Um, that's really the basic setup of the church. It's the congregation ruled by Christ. 
Now, what Christ says is that we're to appoint elders. There they are. And those elders then lead us. They set a direction for us, but they do so in a way that is particularly um, governed by God's word. They're people who are looking to God's word, and we hold their feet to the fire on that. If they're doing things based on their own whim and fancy, we say, what's going on there? We need to get new de- er, elders in there who are going to do that. So then there's the elders. Now, next slide. Our elder team is made up of two components. One is the elders board. The elders board refers to those within our church who are uh, voted on by our church to serve a three-year term as a lay elder. They're not paid by the church. And uh, so, so you have our elders board. And then we also have as part of our elders team, the other pastors. These are people you've also voted on, but you voted on for a permanent role and you pay us. That's how we're different. And uh, so the elders board and the pastors together make up the elders team. And that SP right there is me. The way we have it set up, the senior pastor kind of lives in both those worlds. So I actually am part of the elders board. The really what the elders board, if there's something related to like salary or uh, some personnel issue or something like that, the pastors will step aside and I and the elders board will work through that. Everything else, the whole elders team does together. So that's how we have it set up together. The next slide introduces our deacons. So, there we go. Uh, I'm, one, I'm one step ahead of myself. So, the elders, um, each one of our elders, whether a pastor or uh, a lay elder, um, is over a different ministry area. So, for instance, um, I am over our adult teaching area. Or um, Tim Rosinski is old, over our music area. He's the elder over that. And so he's setting theological and philosophical direction for that. He's shepherding and caring for the people in that ministry. So each of our ministry areas, a word ministry area, has an elder that's at the helm giving the philosophical and theological direction. Then the deacons will come alongside in those areas. And certain certain areas are so big that we've determined... There's a lot on that elder's plate. We need a deacon to come alongside them and help them in serving that area. So we do have uh, a deacon over missions, a deacon over children, a deacon over women's ministry. And in each of those areas, the deacon is pairing with an elder. The elder is giving that strong direction from the word, and the deacon's there kind of as a a close-knit team working together to make things happen in that area of ministry. Now, some of our areas of a church are more administrative in their nature. So you'll see that involves, oh man, I messed it up again. One step before that. Our deacons also are appointed by our congregation, right? So our congregation is that authority, right? Christ is over us, then we answer to God. So we appoint the elders, we appoint the deacons as a congregation. So those deacons then also, we have certain areas that are more administrative in their nature, like property or finance or administration. So we will have deacons come into those areas And in those areas, they really are kind of, we don't have an elder over that. We have an elder liaise with them. There it is. Good job. Um, So we'll have an elder liaise with them. But really, that deacon is the one driving things for those more administrative things. So that's how our church is set up right there. Does that make sense? If you have further questions about it, feel free to let us know. Um, And that's that's kind of the, the picture right there. Okay, we can go back off that slide now to the end. I do that. I pause to do that for you because I think it's important for us all to just 
have a, a big picture mind of, okay, here are the core principles that God said, and we actually are striving hard to live those things out in our midst. I think a lot of you know that I have five children, all nine and under. When you have a family of five young children, there are certain things that you just don't do. For example, you don't take them across the continent to, to a new country and into a house that's still under construction. We did that in 2013. You don't take them all on an airplane trip. Anne's right there. She's about to find out something. We're about to do that in February. Oh. <laughs> and another thing that you don't do is take them into a small art gallery to look at art. I did that two weeks ago when Karen was out of town. We went to a place called Art Effects where Shirley DeVille's, all of her art is on display. It's beautiful. You should go there. I think it's only up for another week. It's right here in town. But it's just, I, I was driving there and I was reading my kids the riot act, right? Don't do this. Whatever you do, don't do this. Make sure you do this. Well, imagine my worst feels when we walk into the place and it's actually fairly small and the art's like right there. You can kick it over, you know? And then my son saw on one of the pieces of art, one of the works of art, the price. And all of a sudden, I didn't have to do much disciplining or correcting at that point. He understood the value of that art. And he was going to stand far away and keep his hands off. I could tell him, do this, don't do this, until I was blue in the face. But once he really grasped how valuable it was, he treated it with its proper care. And I think that's the way it is with biblical leadership and church governments. We can talk about them and talk about them and talk about them all day. But if we fail to grasp how valuable it is, we'll never give it the care it deserves. Because the more you grasp something's value, the greater you care for it. We could have chosen to end this service by singing a song about the church. But instead, I asked our music team to sing a song about the blood of Christ. The blood that he used to obtain this church and to allow it to be a little outpost of heaven here on this world. And so when we sing this next song, Let's also make it our prayer that these are things that we can sing with all sincerity. And that he would cause us as a church to grasp, to look to Christ and see how he wants us to care for his blood-bought church. Let's pray. Father, at the end of the day, I don't want everyone to leave here thinking about flowcharts and PowerPoints. I think that's good. It's important that we all understand that. But I really want us all, including my own heart, to leave saying, hallelujah, what a savior. And to see the unique value you place on this church. No price has ever been paid for anything more high than what you paid for this church. And may we think of that rightly. And may it affect how we treat this church, how we love this church, how we give ourselves for this church. 
And may it make us be people who look to you to govern our church. In Jesus' name, amen.